Hello there. Welcome to No Extra Words, One Person Search for Story. My name is Chris Baker-Dirsch. I'm your producer and editor. This is Season 2, Book Pairings. As I've said before, the list of books I wanted to cover this season was easy enough to come up with. Narrowing it down is the harder part. And as I think I've mentioned before, Where the Wild Things Are by Marie Sendak was always very high on that list. I'm pretty sure most of my listeners have at least some familiarity with Where the Wild Things Are. Although, I will tell you, this is a book that only gets better in its revisiting. During my career as a school librarian, coming back to this book yet again as I have many times in my life, I used it as picture book study, and I would practice with fifth graders how to really look at literature, because doing it in a short-form picture book format is a great way to practice. So we studied the author and the time period. We did just a read of the text with no pictures. We took a look at just the pictures with no text. And one of my favorite things that we did is we actually dissected this book. Um, I have this hanging in my kids' room right now. I'm going to try to get a picture of it for the show notes. But we cut apart a paperback copy of Where the Wild Things Are. The look on one of the school teacher's aides' faces when I ran Where the Wild Things Are through the paper cutter is something I'll never forget. But we took it apart. We laid it end to end and we turned it into a mural. So you can see the flow of the pictures by looking at it. And I'm so glad we did that because I feel like I gained a whole new appreciation for this book doing this. It starts out very small and contained. In the early pictures, there's a picture with a lot of white space around it, that, and that is Max's world. When you get to his room and the forest is growing, it starts to grow outside the confinement of the pictures. Eventually, it spills onto whole pages, and by the time you get into the wild rumpus, you've got these giant two-page spreads that are just bursting with imagination, which is, of course, the heart of this book. Um, and so I think giving this book a revisit is always worth it. If you haven't done it in a while, look at it with fresh eyes, look at it in a new way. Marie Sendak was widely known as having great respect for children. And maybe it's not surprising that his own childhood was rough and he had to grow up fast. He was born in New York to Polish Jewish immigrant parents, and he spent a lot of his childhood sick. So art became a reprieve from lonely days and isolation and being stuck inside. He would later say he based the Wild Things characters on the sort of Eastern European immigrant relatives of his childhood. Because you know how old people are scary when you're little? And he said they had hairy nostrils and they smelled weird and they talked funny. And that is where those people came from. In truth, he would learn later that the relatives that he knew were the lucky ones. His father's entire family, what was left in Poland, was killed in a concentration camp. And Marie Sendak's father learned that on the day of Maurice's bar mitzvah. He would recall this story later, Maurice would, saying how he could, he could remember everyone around him singing for he's a jolly good fellow, watching his father come into the room with this look on his face and wondering what he could have done to upset his father that much. So imagine this, this 13-year-old child who sees his father just devastated and his first thought is, what did I do to make this man so sad, not really knowing the tragedy that's playing out? Do you remember how I said a couple episodes ago that when you talk about books, you end up talking about everything else? 
I was researching Marie Sendak's story for this episode. And as I'm doing it, there's a conversation about immigration happening in this country. And so I got curious and kind of went down a rabbit hole because I really wanted to know when and how these people came to this country, Maurice's parents and these other relatives that he spoke of. And I really couldn't find much. You know, it's the kind of thing where if I wanted to dig deeper and and do some records requests, I probably could come up with something. But I didn't find a lot. And so I don't know if this conversation around family immigration and what's happening impacted this family as much as I suspect that it might have. All I will say is the conversation about who comes into the country, who has a right to join their family, and who gets left behind lives very large in this story of this particular family. I just had to share that because really, this conversation about books touches all the facets of our lives, and it's really hard to leave all of that on the table. Suffice it to say, Maurice's childhood was tough. And he would later say that no one's childhood is perfect, that everyone has pains and tough times, and to act like children don't know about the hard things of the world is naive. Maurice aspired to be an illustrator after seeing Fantasia, the Disney movie, and he was discovered by Ursula Nordstrom in the 1940s while he was designing windows for FAO Schwartz. The story is that he and his brother had approached FAO Schwartz about selling them some homemade toys, and the store didn't want the toys but offered them a job doing windows, which helped Maurice take art classes at the Art Student League of New York, an institution that still exists. Now, the name Ursula Nordstrom may or may not be familiar to you, but if you've read a children's book that was published in the 20th century, you know Ursula Nordstrom whether you know it or not. She was children's book editor at Harper and Row from the 1940s into the 1970s, and she was a huge part of this movement that turned children's books from this kind of moralistic, didactic, sort of adult-approved canon that existed in the earliest 20th century to an industry that really focused on marketing to actual kids and serving their interests and their imaginations, which I'm happy to say is what most children's writers aspire to now, is to write for children. You want to please the adults in their lives because teachers and librarians and parents buy books, but the primary goal of a children's book author is to write for children. And Ursula Nordstrom and, and others like her shaped that she was a huge influence. Her hand is on everything from Goodnight Moon and Charlotte's Web, The Little House Books, Harold and the Purple Crayon, all the way to Harriet the Spy and beyond. And she was the one who discovered aspiring illustrator Marie Sendak designing windows for F.A.O. Schwartz. Sendak became a prolific illustrator in the 1950s. He's known for his illustrations in the Little Bear books. That author is Menarik. I think that's how you say it. The first book that Sendak wrote as well as illustrated was Kenny's Window in 1956. And I'm sad to say I've not read that one. But it's Where the Wild Things Are, published in 1963, that really turned the tide in children's books. Those monsters are legitimately scary. Max is truly naughty. This book does not hold back, and in 1963, that was still a pretty new idea. The book became a classic, but even now, you read, like, reader reviews online, you'll still see warnings. It's good, but maybe not for super little kids. It might cause nightmares. It might... You hear a lot of, this book is wonderful, but... 
Marie Sendak trusted his audience. And kids have resonated with this book for over half a century. When the 2009 movie came out, he was asked what he would say to parents who worried this movie might scare little kids. And his actual answer was they can go to hell. The tendency to protect children has never really gone away in children's books. And it was something Murray Sendak really had no patience for. Um, he would deal with it later on when the book that really landed him on the list of all-time banned and challenged books and authors, which is In the Night Kitchen. But we're going to come back to that in a minute. The format of the season is book pairings. So what do you choose to pair with one of the most iconic children's books of all time? The truth is, Where the Wild Things Are had a huge influence on everything that came after it. So I probably could have picked a lot of things. Um, and I didn't pick this book because it has any special connection that I'm aware of. I picked it because I love it and because it has that same, at its heart, respect for children. And that is Adam Gidwitz's 2010 debut, A Tale Dark and Grim. Grim as in fairy tales. We often forget that the idea of protecting children from scary things is really, really new. I was reading to the three-year-old today, Little House in the Big Woods, which was published in the 20th century, but is set in the 19th century. And there's a scene where Pa is telling his daughter's stories, and they're legitimately scary. Stories about bears and panthers and, you know, the scary creatures that live in the night. And you know, I'm reading this to my three-year-old and I'm kind of watching him to see if he's going to be able to handle this level of scary and realizing at the same time, the main character, Laura, in the little house in the big woods is four years old. And her father really thinks nothing of sharing these scary stories because stories for children for a lot of history were warnings. They were meant to be scary. <laughs> they were cautionary tales. Um... And we forget that modern childhood is a pretty cushy place. Children throughout history dealt with very real diseases that would leave them permanently disabled or kill their friends. They had to be warned about the dangers of wild animals and the forces of Mother Nature. And they lived in homes and worked on farms and other places that were far from childproof. Now, as I said, I'm a mom... And I'm super grateful to live in a world with antibiotics and bike helmets and this low infant mortality that we are blessed to have. But I also think we have created the illusion that we can protect kids from everything, or maybe that we should. Marie Sandak was right. There is no such thing as a perfect worry-free childhood with no nightmares, no bad things, and no scary nights. The mom and me might wish there were, but there's not. And that's not really such a bad thing, because... The world of being human isn't protected from those things either. And dealing with them is part of learning to be a human. And children are human too. A Tale Dark and Grim includes a lot of the original blood and gore of Grimm's fairy tales. All of those classic stories for children. Delightfully, hilariously, and wickedly so. The book literally begins, quote, Once upon a time, fairy tales were awesome. I know, I know, you don't believe me. I don't blame you, unquote. His Hansel and Gretel are not the ones you think you know. Fingers get cut off and drip blood. This is a really fun book to book talk, by the way. I love trying to sell this to kids. People get turned into stone. People get their heads chopped off. <laughs> not, of course, that Adam Gidwitz doesn't warn you. Page 16, quote, 
Are there any small children in the room? If so, it would be best if we just let them think this is really the end of the story and hurry them off to bed. Because this is where things start to get, well, awesome, but in a horrible, bloody kind of a way. Unquote. The genius of this book is in its asides, when he talks directly to the reader in bold print so they can differentiate his voice from the story. The asides are snarky and delightful. They help tie the story together. This is a novel, but its building blocks are a number of stories. But they also help remind the reader that this is a story and that they are going to be okay. I am the person who only survives horror films by looking for the errors. That stuff scares me to death. So seeing the wires and looking for someone to react before something is happening and all of those inconsistencies are what helps me remind my brain that this is not real and that I don't have to look behind the shower curtain to look for the psycho killer. So it's possible this is just me. But having those asides, it's the break. It's the breather. The reminder that this is a story an awesome one, but that I am okay and I am here. The hope is that kids deal with scary things in fiction, on paper, before they have to deal with scary things in the real world. And some training wheels are not a bad thing. And the asides do, in their wonderful, snarky, kid-friendly way, legitimately warn the reader that there is scary stuff ahead, and it gives them permission to walk away. Because that's what kids do. When the things they are reading are scary, when they don't feel ready for them, they put them down. I know because I've seen it. When I was a school librarian, I worked in an elementary middle school combination environment, and that made me nervous. See, as librarians, we have this code of intellectual freedom that is so important to us. We don't believe in denying access to materials because of someone else's value judgment. So I never wanted to tell a second grader that they couldn't have a book. I still remember the librarian who did that to me. In my case, the book my friends were all reading was deemed too easy. I'm still mad at her. I don't want to be her. But while I wanted to have all this fantastic YA stuff for my middle schoolers, the thought of having the second graders reading it made me really nervous. And I didn't want to do restricted sections or anything like that. So what's a librarian to do? It turns out you don't have to do much. I got some YA stickers and I put them on the books that were YA. And then when the school year started, the first week of class, I would say to everyone, grades one through eight, hey, this is a big room. It's full of books. Some are right for you. Some aren't. If you pick one up and it feels off to you or you think it wouldn't be okay at your house or you just don't like it, put it back. It's cool. No judgment. And they did. Third graders would pick up that one YA poetry book that made me so nervous, but that I loved having for the eighth graders for poetry month. And they'd go, meh, and put it down. It turns out that when you trust them, kids are remarkably good self-censors. I started reading online reader reviews for a tale dark and grim to prepare for this. And this is what came to my mind is, is the kids as self-censors. Now the critics love a tale dark and grim. There's good reason that they do. And the reader reviews are overwhelmingly positive, too. But negative reader reviews are usually along the lines of, my kid found it scary. She didn't like it. She told me it was too bloody. You know what? That's awesome. That's not the right book for that kid. Put it down, return it, give it away. 
I'm a gigantic fan of reading choice. I think all school assigned reading should have an opt-out alternate option. I think that kids, and really adults, but that's a whole different conversation, should always have the option of putting something down. That's so important that I'm going to say it again. I think everyone who is reading should have the freedom to put a book they don't like down because life is short, it's too short to read bad books, and it's too easy to turn people off reading. That's important to me. I was also the kid who scared easily. My third grade class, back in the day, tricked our teacher into letting us watch a watcher in the woods for a class party, even though it wasn't rated G. And I had nightmares for, I don't even want to tell you how long I dreamed about that movie. I get it. The age ranges for A Tale Dark and Grim are all over in the reviews. You can see people saying this is not right for every kid. One reviewer said third grade and up, and even for me, I went, oh... Okay, you know, I personally, it'd be a pretty precocious third grader. You know, if I was buying this for a present for a kid I knew or recommending it to a kid I knew, a pretty precocious third grader, I would say. Librarian credo, if a third grader picked that book and brought it to me, I'd check it out to them in a second. I've also seen this book labeled as YA, which seems to me to go too far in the other direction, because YA is usually 12 and up. Some of your more mature YA are 14 and 15 and up, but this one would be the 12 and up YA, which there's a whole lot of 10-year-olds who I think would love this book, and it's perfect for them. Again, kids will self-select. If it scares them, they will put it down unless the peer pressure is really bad or some adult is forcing them. That's where I think that choice in school is so important. The other thing that will stop them from putting it down is if you try to take it away from them. You know what makes the self-censorship model not work? Tell a kid or a class that they can't have a book and they will immediately want it. Which brings us back to the list of all-time banned and challenged books and Marie Sendak. Now, I'm not saying where the wild things are never got him into any trouble. But as I mentioned earlier, it's in the night kitchen that pops up on all those lists of banned and challenged books. You'll see it on display in your library in October, probably. This is the story of a little boy's dream of being baked into a cake. I'm not going to lie. It's a little weird for me, personally. I don't dislike it. It's a little weird. But the thing that gets everybody is the little boy's totally naked. Probably because it is a dream. So, Marie Sendak appeared in these absolutely wonderful interviews on The Colbert Report in 2012. I'll link you to them in the show notes. They are archived, thank the Lord. Um, He's delightfully curmudgeonly, and I want him to be my grandpa, based on these interviews. Um, And Colbert asked him about the nudity. And Sendak asked Colbert if he had ever dreamed he was naked, and when Colbert answered no, the response he got was, well, you must not have very much imagination. Sendak also says in the interview how he doesn't write for children, he just writes, and he doesn't actually like children all that much, just likes them a little bit more than adults. So, like I say, I'll link that in the show notes. Delightful. Another aside, again, this talk about books brings up a little bit of everything. No one talks about this, but I feel a tinge of homophobia in the criticism of In the Night Kitchen. Sendak's homosexuality was never completely in the open. He admitted later in life to never having come out to his parents. But it was hardly a well-kept secret. And to have particularly a gay adult draw naked pictures of a child just makes everybody overthink things way too much. The book is not about nudity. And it's drawn delightfully because it's drawn by Marie Sendak. Couldn't be drawn any other way. In the Night Kitchen and all the controversy didn't hurt Sendak. It was never the majority of critics that were coming down on it. The truth is... 
um, censorship hurts small time authors a lot more than it hurts big time ones. That's just a sad truth of life. Um, Sundak remained a prolific author and illustrator until his death in 2012. He actually produced a picture book just a few months before his death, and another one was published posthumously. He's widely considered to be one of the best children's book authors and illustrators probably ever. As for Adam Gidwitz, his tale, Dark and Grim series, is a complete trilogy now with two sequels, and he is still producing great books for kids. He's got a couple. He had a Newbery Honor not too long ago. A new series is forthcoming, and I love this. On his website, he says he is one day going to write a book about all the ways to get sent to the principal's office based on his own middle school experience, and I think we should hold him to it. I say that how these guys moved forward in their career by way of saying that there's a reason these books have stood up in Where the Wild Things Are's case for 55 years. They resonate because of their respect for those reading them, the respect for story, and the understanding that we all need a little bit of wild thing and a little bit of gore in our world. Before I close this episode, I want to talk for just a minute about why I've just gone on and on and on about books for children and why it's important that there be scary books for children. And I want to talk for just a minute about why it's so important to me for, to include children's books in this project. In fact, it's important to me that we include children's books in all conversations that we have about literature, which frankly does not happen. Um, I will say, I was a children's librarian. I'm not anymore. I read a lot of things. I don't want this to become a children's book show. I want to talk about fiction and nonfiction for all levels and all kinds of people. But I also don't want to pigeonhole children's literature into its own corner and give it a week out of the year or whatever. I want children's literature to be an active and thriving part of this conversation. Why? Well, there's really three reasons. First of all, there's the 2016 report from the Pew Research Center. 26% of American adults report that they haven't read a book in any format, electronic, audio, or paper, in the last year. Okay, that's a pretty staggering statistic, and it makes librarians everywhere cry. But I want to poke at it a little bit, because I wonder, did anybody ask those Americans if they were including children's books in their count? I'm guessing, although I have no way of knowing, that if they include the books they read to children, that number goes down. I am not crazy enough to think that everyone with young children reads to them. In a perfect world, that's the way life would be, but the world is not perfect, and there are plenty of kids who go to bed at night without somebody reading to them. But I'm a librarian in a public library, and I'm also a mom who hangs out in the places parents hang out, and I will tell you, there's a lot of people who do read to their children. Even people who may not feel super confident in their reading skills, even people who may have lower incomes and live in the lower education levels of society, when those people's children hand them a book, I rarely, rarely see them not at least skim through it for a minute with the kid, if they have the time. I'm not saying everybody does it, I'm just saying I see it a lot. And I think... For some of those people, that may be the only reading that they're doing, is what they read to their children. And I wonder why that doesn't count. Why is it that when you read to your child, it counts as reading for them, but it doesn't count as reading for you? 
These books are becoming a part of all of our culture. We're sharing them together. I want to put them on my Goodreads account. That's why I don't want to set my goal for number of books I'm going to read in a year because picture books skew the number. So I think we're reading these to children or we're reading them to ourselves. No judgment. I've certainly done that. But these books are also having an impact on adults. Want to test that theory? Stand in a group of parents sometime and ask them what their favorite and least favorite children's books are. They will tell you because these books are something they are experiencing as well. And I think it's time to start thinking about honoring those books that we are reading as adults because they are important. The second reason is something that Meg Ryan said in the movie You Got Mail. She plays a children's bookstore owner. And she says, when you read a book as a child, it becomes a part of your identity in a way no other reading in your life does. And I think that's true. I really do. Think about the first book that you loved. Did somebody read it to you? Do you remember who? Did you read it to yourself? Do you remember that experience? Do you remember where you were? Do you remember what it smelled like? And then think about the last book you read that you really loved that you couldn't wait to share with somebody. Has it been a while? Was that experience different? There is something about loving a book as a child that is just a different experience. Stand in a room of adults and ask them what the best book they ever read in their lives is. I would be shocked if you didn't hear some of them talk about children's books. The last reason, maybe the most important reason, some of them are damn good. Some of those children's books are really, really good. Not all of them. I would never say that. But a lot of them are amazing. There's a reason J.K. Rowling is a multimillionaire and there's a lot of authors that aren't. There's reasons why writing instructors, when they're asked about first lines, often go back to Charlotte's Web. Some of the biggest impact in our culture, some of the best books out there, were written for children. And I refuse to leave them out of any conversation that involves books. I think that's a slight on their authors and on their readers. I ran Where the Wild Things Are through my word counter. It came out as 338 words long. It would be very hard to find a better story told in 338 words or a story which has had more impact per word on the world than where the wild things are. Before we leave, Max and Hansel and Gretel and the world of scary things for children behind, in case you are not yet convinced that the kids among us don't need protection from the scary world we live in, let me leave you with this thought. At the end of his adventure... When he has left the wild things and the wild rumpus and is back in the night of his very own room, not only does Max have the supper he was denied at the beginning of the story waiting for him, but it is still hot. Somebody cooked it. There is an adult just outside the frame who is making sure things are being taken care of. The adult does not come on the adventure, does not explain the adventure, does not chaperone Max on the adventure. That adult is on the edges of things, making that adventure safe and possible for the child who is the star of his own story. Thank you so much for joining us for this No Extra Words book pairing. If you enjoyed what you heard, I hope you'll share it with a Wild Things loving friend in your life. And if you want to hear more, I hope you'll subscribe to us in Apple Podcasts. That's that purple thing in your phone, formerly known as iTunes, or Spotify, YouTube, Google Play Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I would love to talk books with you. I'm at goodreads.com slash no extra words. I'm new there. So I'm oh, so slowly building it up. And I'm trying very hard at this moment to get all the books I've mentioned, not just the two featured, but everything I mentioned today into there. Um, you'll also find bookish and podcasterish things at no extra words on Instagram. And I even tweet at no extra words occasionally if that's where you hang out. Reading along or reading ahead is never required as part of this adventure. However, if you're interested, we are doing an oddball pairing next week. We will celebrate Valentine's Day by talking about Charles and Emma, The Darwin's Leap of Faith by Deborah Heiligman, pairing that up with the picture book Nothing Ever Happens on 90th Street by, I think it's Ronnie, maybe Roni, R-O-N-I, Schotter. And we will talk about how books frame stories and how we portray relationships of all sorts. And so I hope you will join us then. In the meantime, as always, show notes and more info is at noextrawords.wordpress.com. And I hope you have a wonderful week.